Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. How exciting is it, O'Toole, that the day our podcast comes out happens to be the day that the Academy Award nominations were announced. And I'm always so impressed that they actually do it at 5.30 in the morning, Hollywood time. That seems like a very... <laughs> well, that's because you're a night person. I think they should do it earlier. <laughs> I wait with bated breath when they announce these things, and then I start to get confused by, well, wait, don't you think that in some cases they did a really good job, but there are people missing? There you, I mean, are definitely people missing. One thing I that I thought shows the power of the screenplay is that of all the Best Picture nominees, every single one was up for Best Screenplay, except for Mad Max and The Revenant, which each got 10 and 12 nominations, respectively. Yeah, amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, now also, Christian Bale, he's not a supporting actor in The Big Short. He's he's not. It's not a supporting role. And I'm going to say Rooney Mara is not a supporting actress in Carol. No, not at all. And, and and so then you sort of have to, you know, sort of put it there. But to me, the most disappointing category was supporting actor. Now, who did you think was missing? Well, it's so funny because I'm sure you must have laughed when you saw that Mark Ruffalo was nominated for Spotlight. And this is the only <laughs> Well, role... you didn't like his accent. You know, if you remember from your our, I, our podcast. It will traumatize did... me for years. It's the only role I have not enjoyed Mark Ruffalo in. Even this year, Infinitely Polar Bear, I really enjoyed his performance. The boy actor in Room should have been nominated. I would have nominated R.J. Seiler in Me and Earl and The Dying Girl. What about the end of the tour? How could neither one of those show up anywhere? I know. I know. I know. Yes, I Jason know. Like, Siegel. why are we... We need to be able to vote and we need to be able to send letters telling people how to vote. I don't understand. Supporting actress. Okay, no offense. I don't, Kate Winslet does not get to... Uh, it, it just doesn't make sense. Well, right. I felt like no it's way. a reunion of Titanic because both Leo and Kate were nominated. <laughs> well, now what about directing? Did you think there were some things missing from there as well? I was very excited to see Lenny Abramson. He's an Irish director who did Room, and I heard he's just a very nice guy. So I was very excited for him because I thought that was a hard book to adapt. I always like to talk about, and I've talked about in another podcast, that I do think that it should also be based on a degree of difficulty. Mm -hmm. And when I look at directing, the degree of difficulty in the big short was tremendous. The degree of difficulty in directing in room, just by virtue of the fact that how do you shoot in a small room like that, a third of the movie, very, 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 very hard to do. So, you know, I I give it to the big short for sure. And keeping in mind that this is his first serious film that he's ever done. So Adam McKay, he got a big round of applause when he was mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. I think he he should really, and especially because, you know, he's been, you know, this is the first film he did without Will Ferrell. I hope Will Ferrell comes out and gives a ma- major public statement saying, wait, you didn't nominate him for any of the films I did. You know, I mean, don't you, I mean, there, there you have it. Okay. Now, not to beat my dead horse, but did you see where Spotlight got a nomination for film editing? Know, how about best film? There's just too many nominate. You know, I don't know. It's too large. A, a, One thing that I, I always know. feel compelled to point out, I'm always impressed at how often Brad Pitt or George Clooney makes this list. Brad Pitt was one of the producers of The Big Short. When I look at some of the people that are in Best Supporting, Pitt could have been in there. 
He did a really good job in the big short. He really did. And he was looking great at the Golden Globes, so go Brad Pitt. Yeah. It was the 16th yeah. nomination for Steven Spielberg. I just wanted to mention some things that made me very happy. One is Charlotte Rampling. She's turning 70 in a couple of weeks, and she just received her first Academy Award nomination. Such a gifted actress. Kudos to Emma Donahue, who was nominated for Adapted Screenplay, and that was interesting, too, because she was adapting her own book right. for Room. Exactly. Exactly. And straight out of Compton got a, an original screenplay. Night. Right. And uh, a little surprise, Michael Moore's uh, documentary did not show up. So there you go, right? And Sylvester Stallone got a big round of applause for his nomination as Best Supporting Actor in Creed. Okay, so onward to the Academy Awards. And now some sad news that broke this morning. The great British actor Alan Rickman passed away this morning in London at the age of 69. Right. I just wanted to give him a shout out. He brought us so much great work. Love Actually, Die Hard, Truly Madly Deeply, the Harry Potter movies, of course. Rest in peace, Alan Rickman. For whatsoever from one place doth fall is with the tide unto another broad. Shall we continue tomorrow? No, for I must away. Yeah, great guy. Great guy. Yeah. And the Golden Globe goes to Lady Gaga, America. The Golden Globe winners were announced a couple of days ago, and this is what we had to say about that. Hey, everyone. It's awards season, and we're actually taping this podcast a couple of days before it's going live. So, O'Toole, did you watch? Did you happen to watch the Golden Globes last what night? What I watched was our Twitter feed. I was so pleased that you were tweeting <laughs> while watching the Golden Globes. Yes. Yes, and we got a lot of a lot of input on that, but I just want to start by saying that when I heard that Denzel Washington was going to receive the Cecil B. DeMille Award, I was like, oh, well, that's interesting, but not so much. And then I just, I don't know, I hadn't thought of him in the same category as Martin Scorsese, Judy Garland, Anthony Hopkins, Jack Nicholson, Lauren Bacall. And, I mean, you know, come on, the list goes on. Um, and then they played the clips from his different movies, which I thought was one of the best parts of the entire evening, by the way. And I recognized his genius in acting and, the, and, the, and, and really the diversity of the roles that he's played, the combination of the different personalities that he needed uh, to pull those off. I mean, just look at Glory, mm-hmm. Hurricane, American Gangster, Philadelphia, Crimson Tide, The Great Debaters, Malcolm X, Pelican Brief, Cry Freedom. Uh, you know, I just I just didn't recognize his 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 genius. So congratulations to him. I have you always thought of him as a great actor? I we've never really talked about Denzel. Really? I've always loved Denzel Washington. I love um, his voice. Do you have a do you have a fave? Do you have a favorite? I loved him in Much Ado About Nothing. Oh my god, I didn't even include that and you mentioned it in the last <laughs> I know. Okay. Yes, that was a great uh, film. Okay, well, Directed by Kenneth uh, you know Branagh I, in his Shakespearean season. I'm definitely going to watch it. And then I wanted to put out a note on Jennifer Lawrence's win for Joy as the best actress in a comedy. I'm sure um, you have something okay. to say about Joy, which you called disquieting, being classified as a comedy. I don't think Joy is a comedy, but if it's going to sit in the comedy sector, as you know, and I mentioned this a year ago when we were talking about the Academy Awards, I feel that part of the voting 
when choosing a winner should be based on the degree of difficulty around the part they were playing. So when I look at the degree of difficulty in Joy, how Jennifer Lawrence had to span 20 years you know, of different ages, how she had to be a businesswoman, a wife, a mother, you know, the degree of difficulty for her role versus Amy Schumer's train wreck, where she played Amy Schumer and basically got up and did the comedy act that she's been doing with just different dialogue. I don't think there's any, any comparison between the degree of difficulty. So I was happy that I saw her, um, that I, I thought they the right choice was Jennifer Lawrence. I have to say, though, I think that for a film to be ranked best comedy, they should put a finger on the scale for the one that's actually know, funny. Right. So of all the <laughs> movies that were nominated, Trainwreck, I thought, was the funniest. It was the funniest. Again, some, you know, I mean, The Martian, a drama with comedic moments to lighten the tension. These are not comedies. I was glad, though, that Matt Damon won because he was very funny in The Martian, but I agree with you. It was comedy injected right. for levity. The one that was on the on the cusp is The Big Short. The Big Short is a very serious film telling a very serious story, and it's very funny. But it's not meant to be. It's not meant to be a comedy. You know, it's meant to tell a, you know, a, I, I don't know. I, you know, we, you and I agree on that, And right? what we also agree on, and I was so happy to see Mozart in the Jungle take home two Golden Globes. I knew you would be, but I did not agree with that. What would, what so. would you have given the Golden Globe to for best I, be, comedy? Before I, before I can answer your question, Otulia, because I have a memory the size of a pea, <laughs> tell me who else was up, and then I'll tell you whether I think they should have taken it okay, over Okay, the other five contenders for best comedy or musical on television, and again, Mozart in the Jungle <laughs> right. qualified as both. These were the other five okay. contenders. Casual. I never saw it. Next. Yes, you did. You you told me that you did. Okay, and you then didn't I didn't like, like it. it. Then I did not think it should win. Next. <laughs> <laughs> um, Orange is the new black. Wait, that's a comedy. We'll see. It's landed in both categories. Okay, yeah, in the I past. don't see that as a comedy. I don't know. I don't either. Okay. Silicon but Valley. But I think it's a better show than than uh, I do. I think it's much a much better show. Next. Silicon Valley. Never saw it. Transparent. Uh, I tried, but I, you know, I didn't get it. No. And Veep. Never saw it. With Julia Louis-Dreyfus playing vice president. I loved her on Mm -hmm. Seinfeld, but I was so happy for Mozart in the jungle. The Revenant took home three Golden Globes. I know, by the way, I was going to bring that up. We have to go see this. You know, we have to do this one now. You have to. Okay. But it brought home three. One was for best film. Yep drama, one was for best director, and one was for best actor. Okay, it was directed by Alejandro Iñárritu, who took home three Oscars last year for Birdman. Something Mm -hmm. I find just one of these interesting connections, his first feature film, Amores Perros, of course he's from Mexico, that's the film that introduced Gael García Bernal to the world. So they both took home Golden Globes last night. Now, just to put this out there, I think the Golden Globes' big claim to fame is their awards ceremony every year. Because the truth is, it's made up of about 90 foreign journalists. It cannot be more than 100, but right now they have about 90. It never surpasses 100. Which means that, that the Globes are overseen by an extremely small number of people. The Academy of Motion Picture and Arts and Sciences there's 7,000 members voting there. So if you think about it, and the fact that the Globes come out first and they often feed the Academy of Awards, these 90 people are very powerful. Now, did you notice which took home best foreign language film? 
Uh, no, of course not. I why would I remember that? Go ahead. Son <laughs> of Saul. Oh, and do you remember yes. when we arrived at the Hamptons International yep. Film Festival this year, you were asking, come on, go ahead, tell us which movie are you guys secretly yep, talking they about? They did, they did. Spectre took home best song, Sam Smith. I know I First saw that Englishman to smiling. sing the Bond exactly. song in yep. over fifty years. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you one thing that I thought was very funny was when Jennifer Lawrence said that she wants to be buried next to David O. Russell. <laughs> yes. um, you know, well, between that and but you know, she's already promised herself to Amy Schumer, so I, uh, that girl is going to have to you know cut herself up into a bunch of people. Anyway, that wraps up the uh, the Golden Globes mentions, and now we're going to move on mm-hmm. to our feature that we want to review: Making a Murderer. Yes, on Netflix. Stephen Avery spent 18 years in prison for something he didn't do. 18 years. 18 years. DNA had come through indicating that he had not committed the crime. Law enforcement officers realized that they had screwed up big time. We were getting ready to bring a lawsuit. $36 million. Manitowoc County itself and the sheriff and the DA would be on the hook for those damages. They're not handing that kind of money over to Steve Avery. I did tell him, be careful. They are not even close to being finished with you. The disappearance of Teresa Halbach remains a mystery. Mr. Avery's blood is found inside of Teresa Halbach's vehicle. Steve, everybody's listening. What do you want to say today? I'm innocent. I want to start off before we even get into this, and I can't wait to hear what you think, O'Toole, because it's so not, you don't like violence, so I, the fact that you even did it, we should give you a big thank you. But um, I'm not even sure if that was the biggest deterrent for me watching it. I think it was okay. the bringing back the trauma of my law school years. Well, there you go. Yeah. Either way, I knew this was not in your sweet spot. But before we even start about that, we, I think we have to start, and everybody has to remember that the purpose of this, the purpose of this documentary was not to determine whether this person was guilty or innocent, but rather to take a look at the system of how you, quote, make a murderer long before they go on trial, whether it's the lead up in the press or choosing the jury and do you keep it local or do you go larger than local? And the purpose, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of interviews with the people who have done it. So the purpose was never to determine guilt or innocence, but rather to look at the system. So with that beginning, what do you say about it? Did you like it? Did you not like it? Well, I just found the background of the two filmmakers also supremely interesting because one of them, Laura Ricciardi, she was a practicing attorney before she went she to was, Columbia yeah, that, By the way, that, I film. think that helped make it better. I thought it was good. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was she and Moira Demos who met in film school, and they spent 10 years on this documentary series. That alone is a commitment worth applauding, yeah, just like exactly. the massive popularity of the serial podcast, yeah, is I that agree. I think it Cereal. really plays on a primordial fear of being accused of something you didn't do, which yeah. calls to mind, of course, the Alfred Hitchcock classic the Wrong Man, starring Henry Fonda, which I think makes it just eminently watchable. It's reality TV with tremendous fear around, you know, reality TV, were, you know, has worked ever since, you know, 92 when... Um, when Survivor first launched, reality TV took off from there because everybody wanted sort of a mirror into that which they aspired to be. But this is the scary one. This is the one that could happen to you, could happen to anybody. Best. There's a quote in this that I have to believe 
you immediately wrote down when you heard it, you know, do you, I just want to know, is there a quote you pulled out that you were going to say today? The very last line of the series where Stephen Avery, the man accused, says the truth will come out sooner or later. The truth always comes out. Okay, see, I thought you were going to say, here's the one I thought, ready? Reasonable doubt is for the innocent. And, you know, Ken Kratz said that, do do you remember? (laughs) Who himself was not completely innocent since he had to step down after a sexting scandal. Now, you're a lawyer, and um, God knows you went to the number one law school in the country, Harvard Law School. What does that mean? Reasonable doubt is for the innocent. What does he mean by that? Well, to me, reasonable doubt, that is the tenant on which our whole criminal justice system rests. And you have to believe in this underlying premise that it is better to set guilty people free than to let one innocent person go to jail for something they didn't do. And I don't know that everyone would buy into that premise. The guilty are probably benefiting greater by that mm-hmm. tenant than the innocent. Well, there's there's a great interview with Moira Demos. I don't know if you had a chance to pick it up anywhere or not, but, but she's, one of the things she says is it does point to a flaw in our design and a flaw in our public attitude. The public cares about prosecutors' conviction rates. It's about winning the trial. And just practically speaking, if you've started to build the case against one person and information that contradicts it comes in, it's potentially a weak choice to change course because the defense can point to, well, you thought it was this person before, and now you think it's that person. So that's evidence that's not not the person you're now saying it is. If we prioritize conviction rates rather than having verdicts, And if we vote that way in elections, this problem will just continue. And I thought that that quote was sort of around this, but I wasn't sure I could make the clear connection. But the great question mark for me Uh when she gave that interview and she was saying we should really judge people on whether or not they're getting just verdicts, how does one gauge that? This was, to me, the biggest shock when I went to law school. I remember one of my law professors said that when she herself had been a law school student, she thought she would go to law school, she would learn, quote unquote, the law, and everything would be black or white. There'd be great clarity about who's right, who's wrong, who's innocent, who's guilty. She said instead she would spend the rest of her career wading through shades of gray. And I found this in my own personal experience to be the case. So, for example, when you were watching this documentary, the images that they choose to show of Stephen Avery, he looks affable, he looks friendly. They have people saying that he was a friendly guy. The people that were close to Steve knew he was always happy, happy, happy. Always wanted to make other people laugh. (laughs) And then they introduced that evidence about how he set a cat on fire, tossed it through the air, and watched it burn. (laughs) I thought, okay, that's a perfect example if you introduce one fact and all of a sudden now I'm jumping on the other end of the seesaw. Jeffrey Dahmer, by the way, started the same way, just so you know. You know. And so that's the kind of fact. If it comes in, all of a Mm -hmm. sudden you're swayed. Um, Again, though, with DNA evidence in the first trial, that does seem to provide more clarity. But I am envious of prosecutors, judges, law enforcement officers, any human in general who has such clarity, because to me, our legal system, it is just many, many, many shades of gray. Well, you know, and I have to say, those shades of gray, you know, um, work really well in film and television. Is there any other, quote, thing that's ever been filmed so much other in a, than in a courtroom. I mean, some of the great movies that, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, again, that gray area, you know, totally crazy, right? Well, it goes to show the power of doubt 
as a storytelling mm-hmm. device. And I think because of our adversarial system, watching litigation in a courtroom, at least as it's portrayed in the movies and on television, which makes it much more riveting than the real life experience, where, for example, these filmmakers had over 200 hours from the courtroom. And who can really sit through that? That's asking a lot. Frankly, I think you would. Knowing how you work on this (laughs) stuff, you would do that. Yeah. Well, you know, also, it's funny. I saw that before meeting with Netflix, the team, they met with um, Demos and Riccardi, met with executives from PBS and HBO. Neither of them were interested in this, and Netflix picked it up. And again, Uh we've got to give a shout out to Netflix, who really knows how to pick diverse and interesting things to put out. I mean, once again, Netflix rules, right? And nine Golden Globe nominations. I know, exactly. Mm -hmm. I wanted to end with a quote from Moro Demos when she says, what we try to encourage through this series and through the structure of the series and the end of the series is to have people embrace the complexity of these matters and to check themselves on why they are looking for answers so hard that they can't tolerate any ambiguity and what and might rush to conclusions. And I think that's a great way to end saying if this series does nothing else, it points out to you that what you know for sure is not necessarily for sure. That is so true. And I find it very interesting that Laura Ricciardi, one of the directors, started out as an attorney because arguing to a jury as a litigator and making a documentary to me are two very similar endeavors because it all rests on the narrative you craft either for a jury or for an audience. And then you desperately hope for their approval or their judgment in the end. It's a very similar process. Right. Being a litigator, creating a documentary, you're a storyteller either way. But I guess my big takeaway from watching something like Making a Murderer is that it really makes me lose faith in our fellow species. Because at its heart, the documentary, it embraces a very interesting question. And it's all about the miscarriage of justice, the potential abuse of power, is the wrong man sitting in jail for a crime. But what disheartens me even more are the underlying crimes that took place. So let's not forget that women are getting raped and murdered and sexually assaulted and harassed even by the prosecutor. And these are just taken as a given. The question in the documentary is just who committed the crimes. But I think it would also be a worthy thing to look at is why are these crimes happening at such an alarming rate? I don't think think the question of the documentary, and they certainly are saying, I don't think that it was who committed these crimes. And I think they they went out of their way in the interviews to say that's not the point of this. The point of this is to look at the process and to examine the process. They were really not trying to say who committed this or who didn't. But, you know. And yet the, the consequences of the documentary with the White House being petitioned exactly. for yeah. Stephen Avery's <laughs> release. And, and right. they're talking about Stephen Avery and others. Has the justice system failed him? Was he falsely convicted? Was he not? But really, again, let's just not forget who society has failed. Yeah. There's a parade of victims out there dead and assaulted you know well then we can also if we wanted to get into a real debate is what is justice but we won't go there today so so i do recommend it though do you i think if you're drawn to this kind of thing you will binge watch it so if serial was your thing this will be your kind of thing and because our justice system is an adversarial one i think that makes it eminently watchable it's the same way that you watch two football teams go at it 
on a field. It's the back and forth. It's the tug. It's trying to figure out who's going to prevail in the end. Well, I do think the way they set this documentary was better than Serial. Serial, she sort of meanders her way through her investigation of the of the whole thing, whereas this one, you know, each episode... You know, the plight of the accused, turning the tables, the last person to see Teresa alive. I mean, there were, you know, I think it moved better than Serial. And maybe because there was visuals, but I don't think so. I think it moved better because it was set up better. Mm -hmm. I think it also goes to show that shows like CSI make forensic evidence look far more glamorous than it really is in real life. I mean, that's one job I cannot imagine the word that CSI evidence brings to mind. But you go, I like that you're using it because that's a word you'd think I'd bring into this podcast, not you. You I think one of the most challenging things about the practice of law is that you realize there's always another side to a case. There's always another perspective. There's evidence or facts out there that you might not have been privy to. And I saw a feature film, or I should say a series of feature films this week, that plays up that multiple perspective prism. I was curious if you'd seen it. Two of them came out in 2013. The follow-up in 2014, it was The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby with Jessica Chastain and James McAvoy. Didn't see it, should I? Just let me disappear for a while. I thought it was super interesting because the first is called The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, Her. The second, Him. And then the third is The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, Them. And we've seen this device in other things. So, for example, even the 1970s movie with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton called Divorce. Right. Him and Divorce Her. We saw it even in Alan Dershowitz's um, Reversal of Fortune. Don't get me started on Alan Dershowitz, but okay. (laughs) And it's actually much like the plot of the affair. And of course, Jessica Chastain, I think, is a tremendous actor. She's heartbreaking. Good. We'll take a look at that. And also, in a way, there's something about it that I would rather see a fictional movie than watch this in real life, to tell you the truth, you know? Uh I would. I really would. Anyway, that wraps it up for, uh, for this week. So, see you all next week. 